I love 2 Corinthians. Uh, I've preached from it from a couple times, but I love reading about 2 Corinthians because I think the backstory to 2 Corinthians is what makes it such a compelling book of the Bible. Um, precisely because uh, if you read it, you have to read it almost from the standpoint that Paul is almost in like self-defense mode throughout the entire thing. The Corinthian church that Paul loves, and he gave them some harsh love. If you know anything about the book of 1 Corinthians with the disciplinary matters that he was taking care of there. But he loves this church so much. And in fact, it pains him that he has to treat them the way that he does because they just can't keep getting out of their own way, so to speak. But they've come to sort of doubt Paul. The Corinthian church were distrusting of Paul because they had seen his plans change almost constantly. And in fact, at the end of the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 16, you don't have to go there. But he makes them sort of this, uh, this promise, if you will. He gives them a clue, like, I'm planning on coming to see you. I want to come and visit you. And then that visit never happened. It never materialized. So from the Corinthians' perspective, they saw Paul as not being a man of his word. They saw him as one who was making these claims and then he's just fickle. He's just wishy-washy. Look at this apostle. How can we call him an apostle? And he speaks to this in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians. Actually, look at verse 15 just to sort of get you into this. 2 Corinthians 1.15, he says, Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, and to come back to you from Macedonia, and have you send me on my way to, to Judea. Of course, the inference is that he wasn't able to. And then he says, Was I vacillating? When I wanted to do this, do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? Was I just making things up? He's saying, no, I, it was my truest intention, he says, that I was wanting to come see you, wanting to come and be with you. He says it wasn't able to happen. He's addressing this idea. That his wavering should be sort of a black mark on his resume as an apostle. Because it had. It had caused his reputation, so to speak, to be spoiled. So much so, in fact, that the Corinthians had here come to now doubt his authority as an apostle altogether. His entire office, his entire ministry as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ was sort of thrown into question. Both by seeing all of the times that he's had to change plans. So now he doesn't look like he's a man of his word. But also seeing all of the the great and grievous struggles he has been made to endure. And of course, well, he addresses that at at some length. But then that's why he he goes to such lengths to explain himself. Especially in these opening chapters, explain himself why I was delayed and why I didn't come visit you. He gets to that, look at verse 23 of chapter 1, where he says, I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. It was to spare you, he says, that I didn't come see you. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? 
And as and I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So you see what Paul is here trying to get them to see. I delayed my visit to you, not because I'm wishy-washy, not because I don't love you. Actually, it's precisely because I do love you. I didn't want to come to you and have another, as he says, painful visit with you. So he had to change his plans. Actually, God, who we could say, changed his plans for him. He had already done the disciplinary visits, not something that he enjoyed doing. So instead, what does he, what does he do? He travels to Troas. So instead of going to Corinth as he was intending to, things got delayed. And on this next missionary journey, he travels to Troas. And he's waiting. uh, He's there ministering the gospel and other things. He's waiting for his companion Titus to come and bring news from Corinth. Look at verse 12 of our chapter, chapter number 2, where he says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest. Because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So Paul is troubled for Corinth. And he's troubled because now his reputation is being spoiled by those in Corinth. And he's wanting to come see them. And he makes this trip. And he's, uh, apparently he had sent Titus ahead of him. And now he's traveling to Troas. And his troubles intensify in Troas. Because now there's an open door for ministry in Troas. You might think, why is that a troubling thing? Because Paul's mind and heart is still with the Corinthians. And now here he is in this new place. He's preaching the gospel. And as he says there, a door is flinging wide open for me to plant here, to do long-term ministry there. You could perhaps think of it like Ephesus where he stays there for multiple years. A door is flinging wide open. But Paul is not at rest. He is restless. He is anxious. And he is concerned. Why? Because he's concerned for Corinth. His love and affection for Corinth was so great that he says, I could not bear it. And his restlessness wouldn't subside until he heard from Titus. Until Titus came running and came bearing news. Here's what's going on in Corinth. And he was hoping and praying and expecting that Titus would bring great news. Great encouraging news. Again, you see Titus had been sent ahead of Paul. With, as he makes reference, you might have caught it in verse 4 of chapter 2, where he makes reference of this tearful letter. That letter is, we, we uh, historians and I would agree, is not 1 Corinthians, it's actually another letter. So, of course, he addresses a horrible matter with 1 Corinthians. There's actually another letter in between 1 and 2 Corinthians that's been lost to history. It's a letter that was perhaps, uh, as he here suggests, even more forceful with getting things right in the church. And he's not looking at repeating that. He's looking at coming and ministering to them in a way that makes them marvel and revel in grace. Titus went ahead and brought that tearful letter, that painful letter to them. And the plan was, you go there, minister that, and then we'll meet up, we'll rendezvous at Troas on my way over to Corinth. And then Titus doesn't show up. Paul goes to Troas, and he's waiting there. 
Waiting there, waiting there, constantly looking for updates, looking for news about Titus, his beloved brother in the gospel. And he keeps not hearing things. So Paul becomes so anxious that he leaves Troas and he actually makes a journey into Macedonia. So you can think of it like going into modern day Turkey or, or around there now. He, he goes into there, some unknown city. There's multiple cities he could have gone to. He could have gone to Philippi or Thessalonica or Berea. He goes to some city there and he's waiting in Macedonia for Titus. Ahead of schedule. He's going ahead of schedule because he's, he's not at rest. He's concerned for the Corinthians. And finally, though, if you jump ahead, jumping ahead in the story, Titus does eventually get there. He arrives to wherever Paul is staying at in Macedonia, and, and Titus does come and bring a report, and it's actually a pretty good one. So 2 Corinthians 7, look at verse 5. He says, for even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. He's repeating that same idea. We were restless. We were, we were, as he says, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without fear, fighting without and fear within. We were restless and anxious. We were concerned for this church. We wanted the God, wanted the God of all grace to work marvels in you. And we were sort of, we were praying and fasting. You can imagine him saying that God would do that. But then notice what he says, verse 6. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me. So that I rejoice still more. So Titus eventually makes it. He brings this sort of state of the church at Corinth. He brings it and he informs Paul. Things are getting better. Things are progressing. Things are healing. Things are moving forward. Titus brings this message and encourages Paul as he says, it comforts us beyond all measure. And of course, there were still several nagging issues that needed his attention. That's why we have this letter. Several reasons why he's writing, not the least of which he's trying to settle all those disputes regarding his authority as an apostle. And that's what brings us back to our text in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 14. As he's stating quite plainly that these delays and all these setbacks, these things that you might have seen from one perspective, it's not as they really were. Again, notice what he says, verse 14. But thanks be To God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession through us and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of the knowledge of him everywhere. The contrast is now very apparent, is it not? In verses 12 and 13, he's confessing this idea. We're not at rest. Our plans were being changed. Our agenda was being totally uh, thrown into disarray. It is not going, proceeding as planned. And then verse 14, the contrast is so apparent. But thanks be to God. Whereas before he was not at rest. Because his heart was so concerned. But now he is saying, I, you could almost insert the idea. Now I am. He says, thanks be to God for it. Why? Because even though uh, this was not what anyone had arranged, this is not what anyone had planned, this is not what had anyone had foreordained, what has happened, God's word was still triumphant in them and triumphant through them. Wherever they were going. 
And Paul is here testifying to the fact that while his plans were postponed and rearranged and totally reorganized, that all of that merely did is allow them to, as he says, a wonderful illustration, it allows them to spread the fragrance of Christ even further. Not what we had intended. It was not the plan. It wasn't Paul's plan, but it was so much better. Because they got to see, they got to experience how Christ triumphs over sin and death. And you can, you can hear it in Paul's words again as he says, But thanks be to God who leads us in triumphal procession. He leads us in triumphal march sort of wherever we're going. It doesn't really matter if our plans are being changed. Christ is leading us. He's filled with joy. Thanks be to God, you could almost say, for changed plans. That's what he's here proclaiming. Proclaiming to this church that was trying to say that his changed plans was him not being and not living up to his word. He's saying this is exactly what God has intended. He was moving us to this place for a specific reason and for a specific time. And even though my heart was concerned for you, we got to experience and see the spreading, the fragrance of Christ everywhere. So what could have been viewed as... A fumbled endeavor of logistics and failed plans was actually what? It was just a stage. It was just a platform for everyone and including this church to see the advancement of the gospel. It was continuing to go forth. You see Paul's version of triumphant Christian ministry of successful Christian ministry is not quote unquote everything going according to plan. This is going to be a dated reference for some people. Paul is not like Hannibal Smith from the A-Team, whose favorite motto was, I love it when a plan comes together. (laughs) Some of you get that, some of you don't. I used to watch the A-Team, by the way, so I get that reference. But that's not Paul's motto, that's not his motivation. I love it when a plan comes together. Rather, his motivation is what? It doesn't really matter what happens to me, what happens to my plans, as long as we can spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. That's his motivation. That's his driving, propelling force. Nothing moves Paul more than what, as he says in his first letter to the Corinthian church, that we get to preach Christ and him crucified. I desired, he says there, 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, I desired to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. That's what propels him. That's what moves him. And you can see it's playing out right here. Things weren't going according to plan, but praise be to God. Because we got to see the spreading, the diffusing of the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. Everywhere we went, he was stubborn in that message. That message of spreading Christ's triumph. He was committed to that above anything else, before anything else. Little else mattered to Paul, save for dispensing and distributing far and wide that news. The news that Christ has triumphed once for all over sin and death on the cross. 
And as that message was preached, you can, you can see how Paul is using this illustration of a fragrance. Because that, as that message is preached, as that good news of Jesus' forgiveness through his shed blood is filling hearts. It's almost filling lives and, and it's filling communities and it's filling entire regions. Almost like a candle and its aroma is filling an entire room. Such that as soon as you walk into the door, you can smell it. And here Paul is saying, that's what we had the joy of carrying with us. They were content, Paul and his companions were. Even with rearranged itineraries. They were content with what? Just being the vessels, the channels, as he says, through whom we could, we could sort of disseminate, we could diffuse, we could spread the aroma of Christ. What a great thought. But then he changes He changes sort of the metaphor, so to speak. Because notice verse 14. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And then notice verse 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God. Among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. You note he now shifts He shifts the illustration. Now, whereas in verse 14, uh, the smelly element, the fragrant element was itself the gospel. Now, he and his companions are, as he says, the fragrant element, the aroma of Christ. They are the ones who are giving off this aroma, you can imagine. So just think about that for a second. To be the fragrance of something... Means you have that scent on you. And it's emanating off of you. To the point where you walk by someone. And they're like whoa. Or they're like ew. You have a fragrance. You have a fragrance of something on you. And all it takes is a simple walk by. And you get a whiff. But notice very importantly for Paul. The same scent is getting different responses. Notice verse 15 again. For we are what? The aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. You know, this is Paul's motive for ministry. We are the aroma of Christ. That's the fragrance we're spreading. And we're spreading it for who? For God. For the sake of who? For those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death. To other a fragrance from life To life. He never suggests that we're going to change the message, change the fragrance, depending on who we're talking to. It's the same scent. It's the same aroma. If you're tracking with me, it's the same message wherever he's going. Regardless of how it's being responded to. Regardless of how it's resulting in conversions or not. In destruction or not. In rejection or not. It doesn't matter. He is spreading the same thing wherever he's going. So whether it's in the company of those who are being saved. uh, Those who are the redeemed. The church that is claimed by God in his blood. We are preaching the same aroma of Christ. And whether we are amongst the company of the unredeemed. Those who are perishing. It doesn't matter. We're spreading the same aroma. It's the aroma of Christ's triumph over sin and death. It's the message that Paul cannot almost get, do anything without saying. 
His once for all triumph over all sin, over all death on the cross. That's what he's sharing. That's what he's ministering. That's what he's spreading. That's the aroma. That's the thing that Paul smells like, you can imagine. And this is where we get to that wonderful sort of image that comes about with that phrase in verse 14, triumphal procession. That's one word in the Greek, triumphal procession. One word. It's a reference to an old Roman tradition, a Roman official tradition, by the way. So depending on, you know, you were a Roman general, let's say, depending on how great your conquest was, if your conquest was one that was very highly esteemed and highly touted, so to speak, the Roman general who had conquered would be welcomed, would be marched into town with a giant triumph and victory parade. Think about it like the Chiefs last Wednesday when they marched through Kansas City after winning another Super Bowl. It's the same sort of, sort of dynamic, the same sort of thing. Everyone's lining the streets. Everyone is seeing this amazing spectacle, all kinds of pageantry. The Roman general is decked out to the nines with all kinds of royal affair and attire. And they're celebrating his conquest. They're celebrating his triumph. And going before this Roman general would be all manner of priests and Roman officials. And they would be swinging censers that have this scent on it. They would be swinging this fragrance, in the, uh, censers that are burning incense. And everyone, when they get that smell, you can immediately imagine the people that are lining the streets would smell that smell. And to them, what? It's the fragrance of victory. And going behind the general is who? A line of captives, a line of people that he has conquered. And to them, that same smell that is giving the people on the streets the scent and the aroma of what? Of victory is giving the people in the back is the aroma of death. Because they've been conquered. And now they're being marched to their death. And here you can see Paul's using the same imagery to relay how the ministry of the gospel goes forth. It's the same incense and it's being swung and it's being received by different people in different ways. It's the same message. It's the same aroma. It's Christ's triumph. And to those who are part of the redeemed, they smell it and they smell victory from life to life. And those who are unbelieving, those who throw a stiff arm at the good news of God's forgiveness in Christ, to what? Them. It leads from death to death. That's the picture. Paul is saying that's what preaching the gospel is like. That's what spreading the incense of Christ's triumph is like. No matter what response he got, he was not about to change the message. It wasn't about changing the aroma to make it more dynamic for certain people. It was about spreading the same message, the same fragrance. You see, this is what he gets to in verse 17. Notice what he says. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. This motive, this method, this, this uh, dynamic that he has here is totally, he's saying, it's totally in contrast to those who are around, those who are popular in these days, he calls them peddlers. If you know what peddlers means, you, you can think of it as a swindler, a huckster. A person who is uh, fixing and doctoring a product in order to put more money in their own pockets. You can almost think of it like those old snake oil salesmen. They're spreading something 
Something that they are giving you as the promise that will fix things. The promise that will change things. The promise that will give you all kinds of benefits. And really, what is it? It's just, it's just a magic elixir that they've made up. they slapped a good label on. That's what Paul is saying. That's what Paul is saying. Anyone who tells you anything else, anyone who tries to come and tell you anything else but the triumph of Christ is like a peddler selling snake oil to you. And I'm not about to change that message, he says. They were deluding it, these peddler preachers. He also calls them super apostles. Paul is, you have to read it with like a little bit of sense of humor. If you go to chapter 11, you don't have to go there. But when Paul is talking about the quote unquote super apostles, he's being sarcastic. He's not calling them super because they were. He's saying these so-called super apostles. That's what he's calling these guys who are changing the message of Christ. Watering down the truth of God's word. Twisting the triumph of Christ into what? A message about them. That's essentially what the peddlers were doing. And by the way, that's how you know you're being preached to or how you're being peddled. If the message that you're being received is all about you. And how you can live a quote-unquote victorious, triumphant Christian life. You are being charmed. You're being bamboozled. You're being fed the snake oil of salvation through helping yourself. Because what does Paul say? We are the aroma of Christ. We are the fragrance of his victory. My friends, let me just burst your bubble. The Christian life is not about you. It's not about you. You're not the point. You're not the focus. You are not David. And the Bible is not God's instruction manual for you to kill the Goliath in your life. That's not what it's about. Your success is not the point. Christ is. Christ's triumph is the point. He's the message. And if you think that your success is the point, you're misinformed. You've bought the snake oil. You've drunk it down. You've been peddled. And Paul is here saying, my friends, there's only one fragrance that leads to life. There's only one fragrance that leads to victory. And it's not yours. It's Jesus's. And it's already happened. Let me tell you about it. A few months ago, I was asked by someone why I preached about Jesus so much. And the inference was, you know, uh, you know, hearing about Jesus is good and all, but should we move on to something else? Isn't there something else that we need to hear to make us better Christians? And I've gotten that before. It's not the first time. And it's not, it's not like mean spirit. I don't think it's malicious. I think it's very well-intentioned, that type of question. But I think it's just misguided. Really misguided. Because hearing well-worded wisdom for managing your life or hearing about all these polished practices for how you can better your relationships, I think they are seen as the sort of relevant things that we need to hear, but they only go so far. They only just skim across the surface of what your deepest need is. And maybe they can change your behavior in the short term. Maybe they can change your behavior for a little bit, but they cannot actually deliver you. No one has ever been delivered from sin and death by hearing about how they can fix their marriage. And it's good, but there's only one thing that delivers. There's only one thing that gives victory. There's only one thing that gives life. What does Paul say? Deliverance comes through faith, and faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. 
Christ's once-for-all triumph. That's the point. And he's saying that to them here. I rejoiced in the fact that I got to see it. That I got to experience. Even though it wasn't according to my plan. Guess what? It's Christ's triumph. His is the point. Not my success as an apostle. Not my success as a church planter. Not my success as a minister. It's Jesus' success. He could almost... This, I'm, now I'm reading into Paul, but you can almost imagine him saying that if I were to tell you anything else, it would be like a seventh grade boy at summer camp trying to use Axe body spray to cover the fact that he hasn't showered. It smells different, but the jury's still out on whether it's good or not. It's not the point. You've missed it. The aroma is different, but it's, I don't know if it's better. To think that our lives can be changed or delivered or saved by hearing just practical lessons about victorious Christian living is like walking through the fragrance aisle at the mall and hoping you smell better afterwards. It's not going to work. You need something deeper. You need something truer. You need something lasting. My friends, you need Jesus. You need the aroma of Christ. Paul here says, what does he say? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as integrity. We, what? As he says, we are commissioned by God in the sight of God. And we speak Christ. I've been given this commissioning by God himself. And I'm not going to doubt that commissioning. To speak what? To speak In Christ, as he says uh, even earlier, to uh, spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. As he says even earlier in verse 12, to preach the gospel of Christ. Everywhere he went, he was determined to be faithful to one message, to one fragrance, to one aroma, to one thing of good news that he was dispensing everywhere. And he was stubborn on it. Even if that commitment didn't always lead to rapid results. Even if it didn't always uh, result in a, a, a bounding success. And that's the hard part, isn't it? It goes against what is commonly accepted and commonly sought after nowadays. We would much rather have really zang, bib, bap, quick success. So we change the message. We change the truth. And make it a little bit easier to manage, a little bit easier to receive, a little bit easier to quote unquote live out. And there are ministries galore that are busting at the seams with growth. And it's all very alluring. But Paul here is telling us, what does really successful ministry look like? How do you know that you're part of a successful ministry? Micah, can you put the slide forward one for me real quick? I think it looks, oftentimes I think we think it looks like this. If you don't know... This is Michael Jordan after the 1996 NBA Finals. This was after he had, you know, tried to play baseball and come back and he had lost in the 94-95 season. And now in 95-96, arguably the greatest season of basketball ever performed. Michael Jordan wins his, as he's holding up there, the fourth time he's won a title. More than that, he won the scoring champion. He has scored the most points that season. He also won the MVP of that season. Also, by the way, the Bulls win 72-10, and 10, winning 72 games out of 82 on their way to a fourth NBA championship. Arguably the best team of all time. 
And you could say, everything went according to plan. (laughs) All of these check marks are being checked off. All of these things are being seen as, there it is. He's the greatest. He's the best. I think oftentimes, if you just think about it metaphorically, that's what success smells like. Things going to plan. Everything always working out. Everything always leading to your achievement, to your success. And we think about it like that. What does success in ministry really look like? What does the sweet smell of success smell like in terms of ministering the gospel of Christ? Successful triumphant ministry does not always look like everything going according to plan. Paulus here made that very clear. It doesn't always look like it's going to according to plan. (laughs) Successful triumphant Christian ministry does not always look like a church that has a sanctuary that's busting at the seams. Not always. Successful triumphant Christian ministry does not always mean that the church will have parking lot problems. Successful triumphant Christian ministry does not always mean that the church has a worship band with a billboard top 100 song. Successful triumphant Christian ministry does not always result in sweeping, abounding revival. And we pray for it. Oh, dear God, I pray for it. We can pray for those things. We can hope for those things. But our hope and our success is not tied to those things. It's not tied in those sorts of things being achieved and realized by our means. Our hope and success is realized as what? As we are faithful to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Period. That's triumphant, successful Christian ministry. It's all about spreading that aroma, spreading that news. It looks like diffusing and dispensing what? The abounding, bottomless riches of Jesus' triumph over your sin and mine, over your death and mine, over and over and over again. Telling everyone about the forgiveness that comes through his death and resurrection so that all of those around us, they can't help but see, they can't help but smell that we smell like Jesus. And they, they come along. And they revel in the aroma of Christ with us. The sweet smell of success in ministry. It means being faithful to the words of Christ. Above anything else. Over anything else. Before anything else. No matter the results. Do I want to see revival spread across Stonington? Spread across all central Pennsylvania? Yeah. Do I pray for that? Yeah. Do I pray and long for this church, for this community to be changed by the aroma of Christ? You better believe it. But I am not about to change the fragrance in order to get there. We're not going to sell snake oil to help fix people's lives. We're going to spread one thing. As I've come to see it, my aim and purpose is one thing. Pretty simple. To force feed you the good news that Jesus has triumphed once for all over sin and death. That's my aim. As long as there's breath filling these lungs, I plan on preaching that. I I sort of like to echo what Charles Spurgeon once said in a sermon where he says, quote, When I cease to preach salvation by faith in Jesus, put me into a lunatic asylum, for you may be sure that my mind is gone. The more of Jesus we hear, the more of Jesus we will see in our lives. That's what's successful. That's what victorious Christian living means. It means smelling like Jesus. And in order for that to happen, you need more Jesus. (laughs) Now I was trying to think, I I hope you can track with me just for one more second. Because I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this idea. 
We need more Jesus in order to smell like Jesus. And here's what I came up with. Natalie knows the way to my heart. She does. All she has to do is, I'm, I'm a pretty simple man. All she has to do, get a little saucepan, chop up some onions, put some garlic, and let it sizzle. I'll come home and I'll say, man, that smells so good. What are you making? It's literally just onions and garlic. But for me, man, that garlic hits my nose and it's like, ooh, I, I'm just thinking about all these flavors and all these tastes. For me, I smell that. I'm like, oh, I love the smell of garlic. I would have a candle of garlic if I could, but it probably wouldn't help other people. It smells so good to me and it tastes even better. The problem is what? Garlic, garlic stays with me. <laughs> It stays on me for a while. As much as I can, you know, brush my teeth and wash my mouth. When I've eaten garlic, you've known. You'll you'll know. But I think, I think as silly as that sounds, and I know it's silly. I know it's, I think eating garlic is a good way to think about success and ministry. Because just like eating garlic, the the fragrance that it gives, it doesn't come from us. It doesn't come from us at all. Just like the aroma of Christ isn't something that we have. It's something we receive. Something, if you will, we ingest by faith. And the more it's ingested, the more it's received, the more it's savored, the stronger the fragrance becomes. The more you eat garlic, it's compounding. (laughs) It compounds on top of each other. Till suddenly you go by that person and you're like, whew, you ate garlic. <laughs> I think every dish should be seasoned with garlic, just like I believe every sermon ought to be filled with the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. And even if you don't like it, even if you'd rather hear something else or have a taste of something else, it's only, if you will, and this is silly, it's only the garlic of God's word that can give us the aroma of Christ. That's the only message that works. That's the only message that lasts. That's the only message that leads to life. Whenever the Lord takes us, wherever he takes us, that should be our mission. That should be our standing. The, the, last year, last year, my, my theme, if you will, my, the verse that I wanted to just drill into you, and I don't know if I did a good job of it, but was Jeremiah 15, 16, where the prophet Jeremiah talks about eating God's words and finding them his delight. <laughs> Jeremiah 15, 16, lovely passage. He talks about eating the words of God and they became to me my delight. <laughs> you want to know how you get closer to Jesus? You eat God's word, essentially. You chew on it. You get in God's word and you let it marinate. You let it sit for a while. And then what happens? Track with the eating metaphor. You eat God's word and then you start smelling like Christ. If you want my theme for this year, we are the aroma of Christ to God. Among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, regardless of where God takes us, regardless of what God brings our way, regardless of what God has for Stonington Baptist Church, I want with all my heart and desire, I want everyone who knows Stonington to be like, that's the church that smells like Jesus. That's the church that has the aroma of Christ in it. And you cannot help but come here and hear about Jesus. God forbid. 
there would ever be a time where someone comes and visits and leaves without hearing about how Jesus substituted himself for them on the cross. My friends, that's what moves us. That's what moves me. And I pray above everything else that that's what moves you. His success is what matters. His success is the point. And we, what are we? We are just the messengers of his triumph. That's a freeing message. We don't have to be burdened down and weighed down with it. We get to point to a success that's already happened. And Paul says, thanks be to God. Regardless of how our plans change, we get to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Who knows what the next 350 days hold. No one should try and predict it. No one should try and pretend that they know because they don't. But you know what keeps us in line? Walking and spreading the aroma of Christ. My friends. (laughs) That's what walking by faith and not by sight I think looks like. I pray beyond anything else. That we would be the church that smells like Jesus. That we would smell and we would give other people the fragrance of his victory. Of his triumph. Because he has triumphed once for all. Let us bow our heads and close our eyes as we close.